Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Risking Enchantment. For this episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and we've got a new guest this week, which is very exciting. (laughs) And the first guy we've had on the podcast. A very exciting person. (laughs) This is a non-discrimination zone. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure on me. I'm I'm representing quite a few things, including the male gender. (laughs) So with me this week is Matthias Conroy who is a very good friend of mine and we are part of a bible study group (laughs) and after I conceived the idea of doing a podcast we were having one of our bible study groups where me and Matthias were just talking for ages and ages and (laughs) one of our other friends Helen said you guys should just do a podcast I could listen to you talk all day so So this was a kind of given that I was gonna invite Matthias on and we've come on to talk about a topic that's very dear to both of our hearts, yes. <laughs> which is the need to make Catholicism weird again. <laughs> to use that so useful sort of format of make X, Y again. <laughs> yes. yes. I mean, to be fair, I don't know whether Catholicism ever stopped being weird, but I think, <laughs> I, I think there's been a tendency, especially maybe within the last half century to try and make sure, it less sure. weird yes and we are not about that at all <laughs> we, we're all about making catholicism weird again so i think we're just going to start with like a little bit of background about um why catholicism is considered weird yeah yeah which same. is i suppose the the things that are normally leveled at us are you know we have lots of ritual we have pomp our our masses and our services are like you you kneel and you stand and you have all of these different kind of unusual aspects to them and then outside of that even in our normal day-to-day lives we have our rosary beads and Mm. our scapulars and our ash wednesdays i have this really distinct memory of being at university and i was talking to a friend while waiting for a a small study group with a lecturer of mine who was teaching us old english and he kind of arrived just as I was talking about the Feast of St. Blaise. Mm-hmm. So I was saying, oh, I got... Because it was actually on the Feast of St. Blaise and I said I got my blessing. And so I was describing how a priest just gets two candles and like <laughs> holds them in an X shape against your throat and says a prayer and it like protects you against throat illnesses. And all disease, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's a great day. He was so confused. And then he just goes, are the candles lit? <laughs> <laughs> Which, no, no, they're just they're just candles. They're just candles. In fact, I've only ever seen completely unlit ones. Like they've never been lit. Yeah, true. And then because of that, uh, I think Lent was starting the next week, so I was like, by the way, if you're not aware of this tradition, you might not also be aware of this other tradition. He was he had moved over from Wales, and I said, uh, you know, next week is Ash Wednesday, so uh, we get ashes put in the shape of a cross on our forehead. So if you see someone with dirt on their forehead, that's okay; they know it's there. And I saw him the next Ash Wednesday, and he was like, "Thank you very much for about that." Oh, um, but yeah, I think that's one of the ways that. Catholicism looks very strange from the outside. There's mm. a lot of things that we do that are outside the normal. And then the other aspect is the even crazier stuff that we, particularly in non-Western cultures, there's a lot more expressiveness in Catholicism, like the big parades and yeah. like yeah. the... And historically as well, I feel like. like yeah. A lot of the weedy, like flamboyant Corpus Christi processions and stuff have kind of disappeared from the West, which I think is, is a loss. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 really sad. Or even things like exorcism mm. or there's a lot of outward showing of your faith, which isn't in a lot of the other denominations. Uh, there's a tendency to turn inwards to the more personal relationship with Jesus, to the more spiritual aspect, and to say that we don't need these signs, we don't need these externalised mm. signifiers of our faith, which... Uh, I think is a real shame. I yeah, think yeah, it's... Sure. And even, I always feel really sad. I see great Christian talks that are filmed from various different Christian churches, but their churches are like... They look like university lectures. Yeah, yeah. Lecture halls. And I think that's that's really sad. Like, I'm, I'm glad that we have our churches and our spaces that mm. are so signified for the the space of worship Mm. but i think for the podcast what we're mainly going to do is make an argument for not only why catholicism can and should be weird Mm. Mm. but also the examples of great catholic art and culture that is specifically weird and what that's that's contributed to 
the kind of Catholic imagination. But before all of that, just to talk about why we need all of these externalities, I think yeah. that's a big question, certainly from other Christian denominations, and also from atheists. Like, why do you need all of these? Why do you need a shrine in your house? Why do you need, like, these sort of physical objects and, like I said, externalized signifiers of your faith when your faith is something that, you know, is intangible? Yes, yeah. But in some ways to me, like, it really doesn't make sense to make faith so intangible because yeah we're we're embodied souls like yeah, yeah. we're not just we're not just thoughts yeah <laughs> riding around the place yeah there's definitely i i had a priest at university who really drove home to me the whole both and of Ooh, catholicism yes. oh. which <laughs> <laughs> which is i i'm sure like as as far as i know it's been a huge theme throughout catholic writing for the pretty much the length of the church. Yeah, yeah, I would say in some form at least. But yeah. that Catholicism is the reconciling of two things. So it's not mm. an either or, it's a both and. Yes. Um, that is drawn from the life of Jesus himself mm. and from the Bible. So the idea that Jesus is both fully human and fully divine, mm. that mm. Mary is both virgin and mother, mm. that all of these aspects are in kind of direct conflict with each other in a sense yeah. and that yeah. catholicism at least boldly proclaims both things to be true at yeah. once yeah and i've got it's not quite a quote because i'll be honest i actually just took it from the bishop <laughs> pivotal players on gk chesterton so some of it's his quotes and some of it's more bishop baron's commentary but he had this beautiful section of that particular episode where he was talking about gk chesterton and how he began to understand the faith he was saying how he looked at the critics of Catholicism and looked at what they were criticising the church for. And it would always be criticised for two kind of diametrically opposed things at once. Mm. So it, it's both overly pessimistic in the way that it has contempt for the, the world, kind mm. of contempt for the self in terms of the sinful self. Mm. But it's also, as Bishop Barron said, wildly and irresponsibly optimistic <laughs> yes, that yeah. we have this idea of eternal fulfilment and that this salvation that's so optimistic and that anyone can achieve and that uh, is open to anyone mm. or the timid monkishness and how the Sermon on the Mount and Turn the Other Cheek and this very meek and humble religion that's also accused at the same time of being bloodthirsty yes. and <laughs> in favour of war and the crusades and things like that and I think the one that kind of drives home to people the most is G.K. Chesterton had a, a quote which was the, the naked and hungry habits mm. which is the austere and the asceticism of religious life mm. in tandem with the fact that it's too worldly and too <laughs> yeah. too pompous and has too many nice things yeah, no, yeah. and so G.K. Chesterton's understanding of it was to say that the quote is, perhaps in short, this extraordinary thing is in fact the ordinary thing, or at least the normal thing, mm. the centre. And the idea that actually it's not about a middle road, it's not about something that isn't too one way or to the other, that fits nicely into boxes, that doesn't offend or isn't challenging, but actually instead it's something that confidently puts two opposing ideas together and lets those excesses balance each mm. other out in a way. It's one of those things I think where I, I always love the stories of people who they use their criticism, their, their criticizers to coin their name. So like the Impressionists, for instance, yes. who use that as a criticism and then became the famous name for them. Same with Jesuits, actually. Or the Big um, Bang Theory. Yes, yes, yeah. that's true. Yeah, another uh, great part of Catholic culture. <laughs> <laughs> but it's almost like our critics have actually pointed out a really important thing about Catholic culture and about mm. theology and about the everyday life of the church is this both and thing. And we, yeah. we didn't necessarily, you know, need them to point it out, but it's actually, they've hit on something really important with these criticisms. Yeah, that in a way it's entirely to be expected that Catholicism is weird because yes. it's not that Christianity or Catholicism is illogical, mm. but in a way that um, the my ways are not your ways. Mm. So there is that intervention of divine knowledge that mm. confounds our own expectations. And again, G.K. Chesterton was saying that it's almost like it's not a peg that would fit in any hole, mm. but rather a key specifically designed to fit inside a specific lock. Yeah, no, it's, he, he, it's also him who said the thing that like pink, we like our red and we like our white, but we don't like much in the middle, which is not, yeah. would you like pink on, on the tower or something? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we don't settle for the sort of mishmash middle ground fallacy. We want absolutely and absolutely not in a sense. Yeah. And I think uh, that's one of the really exciting things as well, mm. that you you can have a canon of saints that has 
someone like Francis of Assisi or even Catherine of Siena who yeah. live these really ascetic lives but you also have the other saints who are monarchs and it's not that some people get to be worldly and some people get to be ascetic mm, but mm. in some ways that the two should live in the one person and in our last episode we were actually talking about chivalry and how the interesting thing and the way that it fails but also the reason why it's an ideal in the first place is that it holds two exclusive things in, in the same mm. so you have to be mild and meek and you know very courtly and polite and gentle while also being this powerful and strong knight and courageous knight mm. and how that episode we were saying that you know lewis said that the reason that existed is because humanity needs the ability to counterbalance its own weakest tendencies so it's mm. telling that saint francis of assisi was rich and powerful and worldly mm. And to counterbalance that, he became an ascetic. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that it's all about finding our weakest spots and counterbalancing them with an effusion of grace that says, like, yeah. actually, I'm going to go in this different direction because through grace, anything is possible. Yes. So that's kind of our background to why Catholicism is probably weird. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and why we're not afraid to have it be weird. Mm, mm. I think... There is a fear of scaring people or putting people off. But the problem with that is that Jesus is a wildly challenging figure mm, mm. who was crucified because of his views. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's not as if Jesus came to make people feel comfortable. Yeah. No, indeed. Yeah. And I find it, it's quite interesting. I heard a point someone made recently where they were talking about how we as Catholics have actually often abandoned things about Catholic culture, especially in the last, you know, 60, 70 years, whatever, mm -hmm. and how, you know, you will not see Gregorian chant in a lot of churches these days, but if you go to an action film, that bit where they have the slowdown and they have the, you know, Bruce Willis jumping through the window, they're playing Gregorian chant, they're playing, like, orchestral style music or, like, music with an organ or something, and they realise how this signifies something big is happening in the moment, something really important is going down, but we've actually lost that in showing that we have something really important going I think, down. I think that's really interesting because in some ways, as much as we get criticised for it, it's actually something that the world really longs for, mm. that there is a sense that everyone is yearning for that. Yes. Yeah. Um, even in their, even if they want it on their own terms. So mm. I think the best example of that was this time last year, I think, when they had the Met Gala, Ooh, yes, yeah. which <laughs> the theme was heavenly bodies and the Catholic imagination. You know, it's a bad start when the phrase heavenly bodies is the first two words in yeah. the title. I read some really interesting articles. They were just highlighting both the good and the negative aspects of it. So mm. obviously there were some negative aspects. It was in a lot of cases, sexualizing what might be considered sacred. Yeah. But at the same time, it was this demonstration that actually the world is captivated by big mitres and yes. the yeah. brocaded materials and that it evokes something in people that makes them long for it. Mm, mm. And similarly, our small group at the moment, we're watching The Young Pope, which we're watching critically. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm sure we'll do a podcast on it. It's not that we're going in hoping it's going to be a lovely Catholic romp. <laughs> but at the same time, there is something really fascinating about it. Watching a, I haven't looked into it that deeply, but I'm assuming at least a secular, if not atheist, conception of this story, mm. which the whole basis of it is, is that a young pope comes and reinstitutes a lot of the things that Catholicism has lost. Yes. Including the physical objects that we've mm. put aside because they're too weird. Yes. Yeah. And, <laughs> and there is a sense that, again, there is a longing to see this and a longing for... I, I don't know whether people would say that they're longing for it to return, mm. but that it evokes something in them that aspires to higher things. Yes. No, absolutely. Um, I think that we were just talking about the this before the before we started the podcast, we were talking about it was I guess you done with the Ooh Agatha Christie story, mm -hmm. where a bunch of some Catholic, mainly non-Catholic cultural figures of the time, I guess commentators, artists, writers, gathered together to essentially get an indulge from Pope Saint Paul VI to have the traditional Latin Mass still celebrated in England. And there's actually a great quote from the person who started the whole endeavor. Uh, his name is uh, Alfred Marnaw. Probably butchering that pronunciation. But it's kind of, uh, it's, it's going further into that point about these people are fascinated by these things even if they don't necessarily believe what's behind them. So the quote is, We are not at this moment considering the religious or spiritual experience of millions of individuals. The writing question, in its magnificent Latin text, has also inspired a host of priceless achievements in the arts. Not only mystical works, but works by poets, philosophers, musicians, architects, painters and sculptors in all countries and epochs. Thus, it belongs to universal culture as well as to churchmen and formal Christians. 
So yeah, I think that's, that's kind of. I think that's perfect. Yeah. Like, and that's a real example of how the mass itself goes outside the Catholic Church and becomes mm-hmm. truly Catholic because it mm-hmm. serves as a as a springboard for imagination to things that are beautiful and as we would discuss on this podcast <laughs> that all things that are beautiful truly beautiful are leading towards Christ yes yeah. and so I think it was such a perceptive and reflective moment for all of these cultural figures to say I'm not Catholic but I owe something to this tradition mm-hmm. and that it, not only that it's worth preserving but they were essentially kind of demanding it because yeah, they said yeah. you you can't take this away from us yeah. this isn't yours to take away yes this yeah. is all of the world's mm-hmm. and that's maybe one of the most Catholic things <laughs> you can think of. That's yeah, something that's yeah. specific to Catholicism actually applies to the universe itself, mm. whether the people feel like they engage with the faith or not. Mm. And I think, I, I'm sure, Matthias, you've got a lot of things on the liturgy itself. I think <laughs> that's your kind of special interest area. Yes, no, for, um, for reference, I, am, I act as one of the Master's Ceremonies for the Dublin Latin Mass Chaplaincy. So, which uh, is very I, cool. It is. Uh, it, it's great. I, I, I love doing it. But I'm um, so that is something I'm somewhat passionate about, you could say. Yeah. Say, yeah, yeah. But that also, I think we've discussed a lot about whether it's specifically traditional Latin Mass or whether it's Novus Ordo yeah. or any of those kind of expressions of the Mass. That that doesn't mean that we shouldn't hope and expect to see Absolutely. a certain level of sacramentality and ritual to each and every Mass. And Absolutely. That, and that there is easy things that we can bring back that have been sadly lost. Yeah. And I think that it's also an opportunity for mm-hmm. us now that the fact that a lot of these traditionally quote-unquote traditionally catholic practices which have now been sort of dropped in the favor of in certain cases nothing <laughs> in certain cases they've just been they've just kind of been done away with for not necessarily even any good reason but because for many years this would have just been like a natural thing and you know people would have grown up with it and they never really would have questioned these different traditions and these different sort of obscure gestures as people often call them or whatever and there's actually quite a good opportunity to be like oh well here's why the priest holds his thumb and forefinger together after the consecration or like here's why we use a communion plate when it's like and you can actually do this sort of catechesis about the nature of the catholic faith the nature of the eucharist the nature of the liturgy and, and by could, saying why we did these things in the first place and you can almost take it step by step yeah yes yeah because you can reintroduce them one at a time and say well we're going to explain this Mm. this is why we're doing it yes Um, and hopefully encourage people to actually try and understand because like that's the saddest thing about the vatican II was that the hope was for people to really learn and understand what the mass was about Yes, yes and that is a really noble aim and it's really sad that in some ways it's just gotten so much worse in terms of although it's kind of hard to tell because i guess lots of people could have been going to latin mass and not really understood any of Of it of course yeah but uh, making these changes haven't actually improved people's knowledge i think kind of what they saw was a very real problem which was a lot of people and this was even before vatican ii the last Mm -hmm. 100 years before the sort of the liturgical movement, so to speak, they no noticed their faithful just weren't as engaged as they should be and they weren't praying the Mass. And they it was a completely valid criticism, a completely valid observation. And there was sort of clericalism rampant and so on and so yeah. forth. And I think what they tried to do as a solution to that, and um, what they very wisely um, posited was we should have more catechesis, people should understand what the Mass is about, and we should make some changes to the Mass. So to reflect that, to make some, and that's kind of what St. John Twenty Third wanted to do. But I think what almost happened was they kind of turned entirely on its head and really changed the liturgy. And we certainly made some changes to the liturgy and kind of didn't end up doing the catechesis in the end, which was almost the more important part. I feel like you actually could have gotten a huge amount of the way there just by people being more well-informed and actually writing the mass better. I I totally agree. Because I do try to stay away from a sort of false nostalgia for a Catholic past that (laughs) probably didn't exist at any particular sure, yeah, like it yeah. may be it maybe existed for some people at some times yeah. but not for the the vast majority of people mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that those traditions aren't worth bringing back or resurrecting thankfully, yeah. <laughs> thankfully we are a faith of resurrection <laughs> <laughs> yes indeed yeah but like but i find it quite interesting that it's like people often talk about how in the past um People, you know, they, they sort of, you know, they prayed the rosary during mass. They didn't really understand what was going on. That definitely was a thing in certain places. But like, even a friend of mine, both of his, he's not, he's not a practicing Catholic anymore, but both of his grandfathers, one stopped going to mass after the Latin mass was was, was taken away and one became uh, SPX. He was one of the first people to be involved in the Society of St. Pius X, which is a radical Catholic traditional sort of semi-schismatic group. Um, so they went in divergent completely divergent. In a sense, yeah, but both of them clearly had some kind of relationship with the traditional Latin mass that when yeah. it left, um, and I'm definitely not saying, you know, oh, we must go back to the traditional Latin mass. Every priest should, you know, start celebrating the Latin mass every single day. 
far from it. I think it'd be a terrible idea. <laughs> but I think that even back then, people saw the value in these things. And I think to restore that would be wonderful. Yeah. And I think I, I've touched on it on one of the podcasts before, but I'm actually just going to bring up a quote from C.S. Lewis, which is about pomp mm. and ceremony and why having those trappings was actually important yes. and was actually important to the way that we understand society. So I think that I was I brought it up when I was doing the episode with Maria on liturgical living, which mm. a lot of this is actually tied in with because... Very Again, liturgical living is like an outward sign of an inward faith. Yes. The full quote, and this is from his, interestingly, it's from his preface to an edition of Paradise Lost. But he says, The very fact that pompous is now used only in a bad sense measures the degree to which we have lost the old idea of solemnity. To recover it, you must think of a court ball or a coronation or a victory march as these things appear to people who enjoy them. In an age when everyone puts on his oldest clothes to be happy in, you must reawake the simpler state of mind in which people put on gold and scarlet to be happy in. Above all, you must be rid of the hideous idea, fruit of a widespread inferiority complex, that pomp on the proper occasions has any connection with vanity or self-conceit. A celebrant approaching the altar, a princess led out by a king to dance a minuet, a general officer on a ceremonial parade, a major domo preceding the boar's head at a Christmas feast hall. These wear unusual clothes and move with calculated dignity. This does not mean that they are vain, but that they are obedient. They are obeying the hawk age which presides over every solemnity. The modern habit of doing ceremonial things unceremoniously is no proof of humility. Rather, it proves the offender's inability to forget himself in the right, his readiness to spoil for everyone else the proper pleasure of ritual. <laughs> I love that quote so much. No, I think of all places to find it in the preface to Paradise Lost. I feel like <laughs> I'm amazed that anyone kind of dug it up. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, but it's yeah. it's such a beautiful piece because it, in some ways it should assuage that fear that by putting on your best clothes on Sunday that you're mm. showing off, or that by engaging in something that's so over the top in some ways or so overtly ostentatious that that that's about you. Yes, yeah. When really it's about God. Yeah, and I I love what. So there's a sort of traddy group in, in they're based in France, I think, originally, but there's a group of them in Limerick and Institute of Christ the King. And I think they, they exemplify this so well because they have a really beautiful church. They're restoring it. They put it in an altar rail recently, which is nice. Yeah. But they have beautiful vestments and well, sort of well-trained servers. Um, you can actually go to their Twitter account and see nice photos from, from the church. But they're spending like all of their money on the church and their house is falling down about their ears. Yeah. So the, I mean, eventually they're going to have to make sure the house doesn't literally collapse and they're out of a home. But yeah, I think that's such, an, such a great way to have your priorities that it's like, we will give all the pomp and all the ceremony to God and it's entirely focused on God and we don't care if, you know, there's a you know, drip in the corner of the kitchen or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think it's like, that should be the case. The priest is walking into the church and his clothes are falling off him and then he puts on this beautiful, you know, velvet vestment. So I think it's kind of that, that again, that dichotomy that sort of we were talking about earlier. I think it's yeah. so important. I've had quite a few long discussions with um, some friends who are not religious. And I, I can actually understand, I'm not trying to dismiss them out of hand, but their issue with seeing a really lavishly decorated church mm. and saying, is this not supposed to be a faith where you tend to the poor. Mm. Um, and as Chesterton would point out that like the glorious thing about Catholicism is that it's able to do both at the same time. Yeah. But that my other point was that the churches are also for the poor. Yes. Yeah. And that there's very few places in some ways that you can go where you, you are treated equally in this beautiful space. Like it is just as much for the person who's panhandling outside as it is for the businessman who walks in. Mm. And there's, mm. There's not like a box for the for for the wealthier people, yeah. but but that it's everyone's right, no matter where they are in life, to be able to go to a beautiful church and pray. Mm. And there was this really interesting study that was done um, about the impact that churches have, because in some ways the study was about a couple of different types of buildings. So you have churches, libraries, I'm sure some like public buildings and museums, but mm. any of these spaces that are very obviously beautiful you would hope there are some mm, bad examples yeah, of all of them um, <laughs> but in terms of the examples of the beloved beautiful architecture that it has a neurological effect on people yes. that yeah. they compared it to almost like instant 
meditation mm. so that mm -hmm. there is a neurological change that goes on in your mind when you enter these spaces that allows you to enter a contemplative and a transcendent state of mind. That's the right of every person that yes. yeah. to be able to have a space where they can do that and encounter God and have a better chance of allowing themselves to encounter God because mm. our minds are such <clears throat> busy, cluttered places that, and not all of us are particularly proficient at practicing what is meditation or mindfulness <laughs> yeah. or any of these yeah. practices, yeah. but that that shouldn't stop anyone from being able to go into a church and, and feel that space. And I was listening to an interview recently between two people who are completely not religiously affiliated at all. And one of them is a comedian and a filmmaker. But mm. he said, oh, what I do is I go into churches. And they... Yes, I just saw that as well. <laughs> yeah, they kind of dismissed it as saying, oh, well, I'm sure because it's quiet. Mm. But even he said, oh, and you can't really take out your phone. Well, mm. why can't you take out your phone <laughs> yes, in a yeah. church? Because you know it's not the proper thing to yeah, do. You yeah. know it's not the solemn thing to do. Like, this is a space that's aside from all of that. Mm. Yes, yes. And I think mm. that there's such a beauty in having that available to people. And that, I don't know, I've seen a couple of churches that charge for entry, but the vast majority of them, like even somewhere like St. Peter's in Rome yeah. does not charge for yes, entry. Yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah. And so because it's not about who you are, it's mm. for everyone. And I was trying to explain this to my friend that the priest doesn't own that church. Yes, that, yes. That often yeah. the people who are, let's say, presiding over a particular church, mm. it's not theirs. No, no, um, not at all. Yeah. Uh, it belongs to the church, but in the in the way that the church serves the people, it belongs to the people. Mm, mm. And so I think we're really blessed to have this rich heritage of having these spaces that are so set aside from your office, your car, even your home, that mm. allow you to encounter God. Mm. And and obviously we believe that God is actually physically present in the Eucharist, which Very helps. So, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so when you go to that, you are stepping into a space, yes. but that it kind of confounds the idea that churches should just be like a sports hall that has, mm. a, has a tabernacle or or like those other Christian denominations who, like I said, were doing amazing preaching, mm. but they're just a university lecture hall. Yes, um, yes And yeah. so yeah. that there's something intrinsic in the way that churches are built or were built that helps you encounter God. Mm. I'll link the actual study in the description, but it was um, Dr. Julio Bermudez and his team research focused on buildings and sites designed to elicit contemplation. They theorized that the presence of contemplative architecture in one's environment may over time produce the same health benefits mm. as traditionally internally induced meditation, except with much less effort by the individual. <laughs> the non-profit research center interweaves private and public spaces with a strikingly formal inward-looking plan that echoes the format of a medieval cloister composed of strong-willed yet sensuous materials it possesses a hushed dignity that encourages contemplation mm. um, and that so far the research has proven that against what some of the apostles of practicality <laughs> preach architectonic design is not a mere accessory yeah. so that is great yeah and i'm going to uh if i may mm -hmm. go ahead and bring something from old old Tom, say Thomas Aquinas, yes. <laughs> on this subject. I think this is actually such a good... Um... For a second, I thought you were going to say Tom Bombadil. <laughs> I was really He is confused. a merry fellow. He is a merry fellow. <laughs> right where his jacket is. Okay, so this is, this is uh, St. Thomas. The human mind, in order to be united to God, needs to be guided by the sensible world, since, quote, invisible things, ellipsis, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, as the Apostle says. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Wherefore, in the divine worship, it is necessary to make use of corporeal things, that man's mind may be aroused thereby, as by signs, to the spiritual acts by means of which he is united to God. Therefore, the internal acts of religion take precedence of the others and belong to religion essentially, while its external acts are secondary and subordinate to the internal acts. And that's something you always really need to prioritise when you're talking about these liturgical things, where it's like, these things are beautiful, but ultimately, if you have great vestments, great servers, everyone is dressed in their Sunday best and no one there is actually devoted to Jesus Christ, then yeah. it's a total waste. Yeah, yeah There's absolutely. nothing really there. Like, there's a tiny bit maybe of offering art to God, which is good in and of itself, but when push comes to shove, if it's not bringing you to Christ, then this is um, Don Benedict of, of the Benedictine Silver Stream. Um, there's a short documentary about them, actually, which is worth a look. I might put it in the show notes. It's only like 15 minutes long. <laughs> but he was saying that, like, if the liturgy does not bring you to Christ, it's just not serving its purpose. Absolutely. Um, and that goes for liturgy in the broad sense of, like, daily prayer, buildings, art, so on and so forth. Yeah, because it should be an outward sign of an existing inward faith. Yes, yeah. That the externals only come from the internal. Mm. And I think the best example of what Thomas Aquinas was saying is when you see there's an incredible video going around... Um, 
Twitter at the moment where it's showing, I think it's in Nigeria, but it's soldiers who are kneeling in the middle of just a dirt road mm. for benediction. Mm. And they're in the process of fighting Boko Haram. And so they're having this encounter with God. Mm. And it's funny because it does include both because it's literally a dirt road. There's no altar. Yeah. But they have these beautiful thuribles and things like that. Mm. So that there is an element of right praise, but that it's doing what you can where you can. Yes. And so yeah. it's better to have the actual desire to be close to God mm. rather than these externalities. Yeah. It's particularly when your circumstances, there's another one of the, is it Father Emile Capon, where he's holding mass for the Vietnam troops on the hood of his... Um, I think I've heard about this. Uh, uh, on the hood of his uh, band. And that's so beautiful. Mm. And obviously that's incredible. And obviously mm. I don't think anyone should say, well, well if you can't get to a lovely decorated <laughs> church, you should have mass yeah, that's, yeah. that's ridiculous yeah, yeah. but that it is right and fitting that we should express ourselves in these ways and that we shouldn't feel self-conscious about how weird catholicism is i find it very strange when people first of all I, in in the most uncharitable way possible <laughs> i always find the phrase i'm spiritual mm quite kind of just a bit boring which I have plenty of incredible friends who that's how they would express themselves yeah, and I sure. think that they probably have a really deep understanding and wrestling of what they're trying to get through so mm. that's not dismissive mm. but I get excited about being able to express my faith in a particular way that mm. I don't have to shrink from the concrete element of it that it means that I fast at these times it means that I wear these clothes at these times yes. it means that I set aside this time for this mm. and that allows me to feel like my faith is integrated with all parts of my life yes I think it's really beautiful so yeah so what's the third quote from I can't think of the letters I think it might be Romans again the God at being all in all idea yes. that's like in the fullness of time so it's like we can do a little bit here to make to make God all in all in our own lives. And mm. it's really telling then in the book of the Apocalypse that mm. in the heavenly Jerusalem there is no temple. Yes, yeah, I love that. We were actually yeah, talking about that last night. It's such a really beautiful idea that yeah. the whole city is the temple. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that again, the body is the temple as well, that like yes, all yeah. parts of you are the temple. And so the things that you do and the things that you say and, and the way that you express yourself is an expression of your faith. Mm -hmm. And in all of its contradictory and weird nature. Yeah, natures, <laughs> yeah, yes, indeed, yeah. And that faith is way more hard and difficult and costly. Mm. I think that's actually a, a phrase that Flannery O'Connor uses, that it's the faith is costly, that it's not a comforter, it's not a duvet mm. to wrap yourself in, <laughs> yeah. and that kind of it shouldn't go down so smooth. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And that the tendency to try and make religion fit the world is such a... In some ways, it's kind of an illogical thing because mm. the world should fit religion in, yes. in a way. Yeah. And that... The expression of faith where it doesn't challenge or confound or even upset people is in some ways like a representative of timidity around it. Mm -hmm. I know Flannery O'Connor has this great quote. It's from her letter. So it's in the book, The Habit of Being, which I would really recommend. I think I've said it before, but I love her fiction. But I, I would almost recommend her letters first. Mm. I was listening to one of the Word on Fire recently had their digital summit, which was incredible. And actually my friend Stephen Bullivant was on it. <laughs> yeah. So I was very, very happy to be able to listen to that. But I'm trying to think who it was, but someone was saying, I think it was Dr. Todd Warner, was saying, which book of G.K. Chesterton's would he recommend to Catholics mm. first? Mm. And his suggestion, which I thought was actually a really good suggestion, was... Just read some of his quotes first, because he, interesting, like interesting. his actual books can be quite intimidating mm. or there's a lot in them, so they can be difficult to get through. But actually read his quotes first. And mm. I feel like in some ways it's the same with Flannery O'Connor, okay, sure, because but... I think you get a sense of her tone and her perspective, particularly from her letters or, you know, quotes from her letters gives you the key to understanding her fiction. Because I think if you just go in cold, it can be a bit strange and weird. And mm. we're going to come back to her fiction later. Sure. But she says in one of her letters, a higher paradox confounds emotion as well as reason. And there are long periods in the lives of all of us and of the saints when the truth as revealed by faith is hideous, emotionally disturbing, downright repulsive. Witness the dark night of the soul in individual saints. Right now, the whole world seems to be going through a dark night of the soul. There is a question whether faith can or is supposed to be emotionally satisfying. I must say that the thought of everyone lolling about in an emotionally satisfying faith is repugnant to me. <laughs> I believe that we are ultimately directed Godward and that this journey is often impeded by emotion. Mm. So that's the other element of weirdness is that it, it confronts you yes. and that it should make you stop and think. And 
strangeness, I was thinking of this, what makes something strange is the combination, as far as I can tell, it's almost always the combination of something familiar with something unexpected. I like that. Yeah, no, that um, makes sense, yeah. And so, or that's specifically in uncanniness, and I did mm. a lot of study of the uncanny when I was at university. Sure, yeah. And so it's that sense of being at home and not being at home. It's the familiar when something has changed. Mm. And like we said, that that's very representative in Christ. He is something familiar, a man who is also God. Yes. Um, All of those great biblical paradoxes have that sense of it's one expectation confounded by another expectation. Mm. Mm. And so the strangeness, it's not even just a smug, oh, we're not like the rest of the world because we do our own thing. (laughs) That's very simplistic and that's cliquish and Mm. elitist in the sense that it's almost like saying we know better than the world because we're doing this thing. If that's the aim of being strange and if that's the aim of your rituals, that is not, <laughs> that, that does not have a, a good purpose. Yeah. But in terms of, particularly through art and culture, it should be to shock people, but to shock them into a kind of contemplation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I really agree. I think that, yeah, it's like you need to take people out of like the daily haze in a sense and yeah. like actually like show them something. Yeah, be- something because yeah. your whole life is so caught up in your thoughts and your chores and your to-do list Mm. and it's so easy to go through life in a sort of like you said like a haze Mm. where you're Mm. not actually questioning the world around you and I think some people would be surprised to hear that because they assume that faith is about taking everything as given and, and, and existing in that haze where you just don't question yeah but it isn't. It is about yeah. it's about encountering the paradox that is the all powerful God who yeah. decides to become a baby in yeah. a manger. Like yeah. there's no that that should be an uncomfortable juxtaposition. Yes. Or and I was saying to Matthias, Phoebe and I have been planning long before we had a podcast, we we said that we wanted to do something where we talked about the paradox of having beautiful churches with horrendous looking crucifixes in the Mm, middle of them and so we'll be doing a full episode on that in lent but just just to touch on that the idea that beautiful paradox that we hold up as a victory standard Mm. our crucified lord yes that should be unsettling yes i often find when i see people online who are unsettled by it i saw someone who was saying how unfair it is to have crucifixes in in schools because of how disturbing it was there's that gut instinct to be like oh don't tell us not to have crucifixes (laughs) but in some ways they've almost got it yeah no i mean that was literally just thinking i was actually like in a way i'm glad it's become because it's a crazy thing to be uttering from my mouth but literally an image of someone being tortured to death has almost become like common garden for us it's like something we just see it's like oh yeah there's a crucifix and it's like this is literally never mind that he's god never Mm -hmm. mind that he's why he's doing it for us this is literally someone like dying yeah. and often looks quite like pained. Yeah. Um, it's almost, <laughs> I hate to use the word good because good is a really odd word to use in this context, but. Well, it's the good of Good Friday. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> good point. Yeah. Good, good point. Um, <laughs> but, but no, indeed, the fact that it is shocking people is, it's almost like what it's, what it's meant to do in a sense. I, I preached one thing, and, Christ crucified. And even to a more upsetting, I guess, example for me was someone was telling me recently that they were talking to a priest who was giving communion catechesis Mm. and he was talking to the parents for one session and then he was going to talk to the kids. And when he explained to the parents what the Eucharist was, um, he and he explained it, and she said, "Do not dare tell my children that. That's wow. disgusting." Yeah. Now, obviously, if you want to remain in the Catholic faith, that's something you're going to have to take on board. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the fact that we do consume the body, blood, soul, and divinity, and we believe in that not in a symbolic way, yeah. but in in an actual way, that it is disgusting at first glance, at least. Yeah. That it should make you feel uncomfortable and unsettled. Yeah. It's it's so much more than a wafer or a piece yeah. of bread yeah. or... Or a symbol. Or yeah. <laughs> as, as Mary O'Connell once so eloquently put it, once in, it's, if it's a symbol to hell with it, that's yes. just it. So, yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so actually maybe speaking of Flannery O'Connor, will we go through some of the kind of cultural examples Let's of sure, yeah. weirdness in Catholicism that we've been, uh, we've been enjoying. So <laughs> um, as I said in the very first episode, uh, Flannery O'Connor is one of my all time favorite authors and writers and people generally. <laughs> I think she's amazing. Mm. But she is a Catholic writer through and through and actually she kind of objected to. So Graham Greene was writing at the same time and he was he was essentially saying that that his writing is kind of in spite of his Catholicism sure. or that it's to one side of mm. his his faith, which I think 
in some ways is a bit of self-denial because as Flannery O'Connor says, that actually as a Catholic, everything you do is kind of through, yeah. through the lens of being a Catholic. Yeah, yeah. She really disdained that and she was really adamant that she writes the way she does because she is a Catholic, mm. which I think people find really surprising because her stories are weird and disturbing and they're often about very unsettling people. You've mm. got murderers, you've got con artists, racists, one of her very famous stories involves someone dressing up as a gorilla. They are genuinely strange. Like, if mm. you think it's just on the edge of being strange, it's totally not. There's, it's taking the plunge. <laughs> it, it is very much taking the plunge. And it's about a lot of strange people. Now, I love, I have, I have some people that I follow online who are from the American South. And they're like, well, that's just the American South. <laughs> um, so some of it is just drawn from reality. But mm. she had that ability to write from this perspective of a particular place in which, as they're called in a lot of the critiques, freaks mm. are the the daily occurrence. And so she gets asked a lot why she writes about them. A lot of her short stories, so she has, I think, two novels and then the rest are short stories. Mm. And most of them end pretty tragically. Sure. The formula that she says is that each story is about a moment where someone is offered grace. Mm. And for the most part, they reject it. Sure, so sure. most of them end pretty unhappily. Mm. Yet they're written with such clarity and with Flannery O'Connor's incredible wit that I don't find them that heavy to read, but I can see how others would. But she was asked about it and she had this quote, which is incredible. Whenever I'm asked why Southern writers particularly have a penchant for writing about freaks, I say it is because we are still able to recognise one. To be able to recognise a freak, you have to have some conception of the whole man. And in the South the general conception of man is still, in the main, theological. That is a large statement, and it is dangerous to make it, for almost anything you say about Southern belief can be denied in the next breath with equal propriety. But approaching the subject from the standpoint of the writer, I think it is safe to say that while the South is hardly Christ-centred, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. Mm -hmm. The Southerner, who isn't convinced of it, is very much afraid that he may have been formed in the image and likeness of God. Ghosts can be very fierce and instructive. They cast strange shadows, particularly in our literature. In any case, it is when the freak can be sensed as a figure for our essential displacement that he attains some depth in literature. Mm. So she's almost showing the brokenness of society as it really is. Yes, like we all yeah. live these very boring, straightforward lives. Mm. But in a sense, there is that inward brokenness and this inward displacement that sure. she, she mm. externalises in her literature, which mm. I really, really love. And then uh, just another quote by her, which is why she feels like she has to do this. Mm. And she says, when you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs you do, you can relax a little and the more normal ways of talking to it. When you have to assume that it does not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing you shout, and for the blind you draw large and startling figures. Mm. No, that's, yeah, that's so, no, it's so true, and it's like, we, it's, and it's kind of like, I mean, we touched on it earlier, but I feel like it is that thing of, we now need to, like, there's almost, a, a generation has been born outside of Catholic culture in certain yes. ways. And so, I mean, she's writing this, I don't know, when, when was she, when she, when she was writing, I, I could be wrong, I'm pretty sure it was the 1950s. Sure, yeah. But, that quote was specifically about her being a Catholic writer in the Southern Protestant South. Yes. So yeah. in a way, it's similar to now, which yes. is that Catholic writers are writing to a completely secular audience. Mm. And she was a Catholic writing to a completely Protestant audience. And not only that, but a Protestant audience that did not feel the need to be reconciled to Catholicism yes. now. So yeah. whereas now we might see a bit more ecumenism between the two, mm. that divide was still largely there at the time. Sure, yeah, yeah. But no, yeah, and it, it is a thing that... <laughs> Catholicism is very shocking yeah. <laughs> in many ways and to get that across you do need to you know be true to it and shock people <laughs> yeah I, I have two more quotes from her and then <laughs> I'll give it a rest but, uh, she <laughs> said and more than ever now it seems that the kingdom of heaven has to be taken by violence or not at all you have to push as hard as the age that pushes against you mm. and I think in some ways it's not about a return to clericalism. It's not no. about a return to an imagined past when the church was glorified. <laughs> In a culture that's so secularized, there's a sense that if you became the Catholic culture that you want to be, mm. at least there's something to point to. In some ways that like, I would almost say, and I've seen it even within my own life and within my own friends, that 
the first step of evangelization is often just that you live a happy life yeah. and that your life doesn't look like other people's lives. Yes, yeah. And so that could almost be a bridging point where people say, well, I don't agree with you on all of these hot button issues, but you seem to have something that I want and I don't have. Yes. And so if we're afraid to actually show what we have, yeah. then it's harder to bridge that gap because you're just a nice person who seems to be happy. Yes. And actually, I think that in the current age, and so this is actually, I'm going to, Slip in a short quote from um, Marshall McLuhan, who was a communication theorist. He was the guy who came up with the medium is the message phrase. Mm -hmm. But he was talking about how it was almost the worst era for priests and nuns to start walking around in plain clothes mm -hmm. was the era that they did it, so around 60s, 70s. Mm -hmm. Because that was basically the time when like media was really on a stark upwards trajectory and the yeah. optics of things really mattered. And so as you were saying, Almost just like a priest walking down the street in a cassock take you out of your reverie for a second. And it's like, even if you don't know the person, it's like, oh. Like, in fact, I was actually just talking to a woman and she was, it was at a, a, a talk that um, a Dominican was giving. And she was talking about how she, you know, she was going through a rough time in her life with family life and so on and so forth. But she just saw a brother or a priest walking down the street in a, in a Dominican habit. And it was a huge eureka moment for her. And she was like, okay, well. And she started going to Dominic Street where the Dominicans are now. Yeah. And actually just the power of someone literally saying, absolutely nothing but just walking by you in a distinctly different yeah. sort of costume and the quote is what the young are obviously telling us is this uh, we want beards <laughs> we want massive costumes investments for everybody we don't want any of this simple plain individual stuff um, I think it's so true yeah that's that is bang on <laughs> I really like that and I've had that experience so many times I'll be talking with a friend who's in a Dominican habit and everyone in the cafe around us is what is going on <laughs> yes yeah. but we're just having coffee that's an opportunity for evangelization and going out into the culture that you preserve your own catholicism and then you go out into the world and mm. you show them the juxtaposition of those two things yeah and i think it's summed up in that phrase we are meant to be in the world but not of the world yes. that you're surrounded by the world but that you have your own sense of who you are as a catholic yes and that it shouldn't like i said that it shouldn't go down so smooth it shouldn't be the saccharine thing that my last flannery quote is that <laughs> this one is very funny as for fiction the motto of the catholic press should be we guarantee to corrupt nothing but your taste <laughs> which she's saying very disparagingly that the catholic fiction at the time was so sweet that you couldn't possibly ever think of something negative in relation to it except that it's poor art yes um, <laughs> And I absolutely love that. I think she's incredible. Yeah, it's and I think it's the issue with a lot of like modern Christian music. Yes. Especially Christian music is it's it's aside in fact it's always the same four chords, there's always storm <laughs> metaphors. It's just it's not like challenging you in any way. And it's just literally like throwing out some vaguely sacred sounding words. And I also want to say all Christian music is bad by any stretch, but I find often I much prefer music that is Christian rather than Christian music. I would agree. And I think that's really interesting. I know I'm trying to think whether it was the same interview we were referencing earlier, but I clearly like listened to too many interviews because I, <laughs> I cannot remember where this is from. But someone was saying that they actually get annoyed when they turn on the radio and they're flicking through the different stations. And they hear some like rock music and you're like, yes, this is what I want to listen to. And then it gets to the chorus and it's all about Jesus. And they like <laughs> slam on the brakes and change the station because that's not what they were hoping for. They sure. were, there is, I mean, like that's definitely an element of confounding expectations. Mm. And I'm sure there's some good to that. But in some ways, I feel like people don't always want your pill squished into some ice cream for you to take it yeah, down with. Yeah, like yeah. that almost if it was a whole thing in and of itself, that it would be more approachable because people know what they're getting into. But like I said, I th I'm not completely disparaging Christian music. Not at all, no. And I would also say, I think it serves a purpose for Christians Very as well. Very much so, yeah. But yeah, I think I just thought it was really interesting that, that someone was talking about how they didn't like being sneakily brought into yeah, like yeah. a praise and worship song. <laughs> um, that's one thing that actually I'm gonna make, I'm gonna preface this by being it's extremely simplified what I'm about to say, and it's not even close to being the full truth. But I think almost the the more I want to say bare bones new mass liturgies when there's a lot of the music is has been taken out, or it's just it's it's the bare bones of what the mass is. It's still enormously beneficial for for Catholics, practicing Catholics, because mm -hmm. they get to worship God. You know, the priest offers the holy sacrifice of the mass, and you get to receive Holy Communion if you're in a state of grace, and and so on and so forth. So there's still an enormous degree of prayerful value to the mass, regardless of how it's celebrated, as long as it's valid. <laughs> but for a liturgy to be truly beautiful uh, and to really exemplify all the things that are sort of, if you want to say, objectively beautiful about a right and proper liturgical celebration, it can almost be a form of evangelization in and of itself, and it can be mm -hmm. a form of showing 
something that, that even people who aren't explicitly religious can appreciate. I think, because isn't that what converted Thomas Merton? I was, yeah, actually, I was literally reading that, or at least skimming that story a little while ago. It's actually, it's, it's really worth a read, yeah, Thomas Merton's conversion story about he, he knew, he basically left halfway through the mask because it was like too much almost. Um, <laughs> Sensory overload. Yeah, exactly, yeah, and he was, it was just something, he just knew something really, really important was happening yeah. and the bells were ringing and stuff and he was just like, you know, I need to get out of here. Um, yeah. And he did, but his life was, was never the same afterwards. It's actually, I would, I would highly recommend reading that story. It's, it's quite impressive. Yeah, I really love it. And I think, there is a real desire for that. Like, I think it's telling that the religious orders that are on the rise are the, the habited ones, yes. the ones that are that are taken apart from the world in a way. Like, some of them are cloistered, some of them are semi-cloistered, but those are the ones that are really, they're growing in numbers because there's a sense of excitement about doing something really different and yes. unusual. Yeah. And, yeah. It's almost like I was thinking, like, people have wonderfully, because, I mean, it's one of the things that Vatican II suggested, which a lot of people ignored, was the, the laity praying the divine office again. Yes. And the liturgy of the hours. And <laughs> I was almost thinking, like, people have to pray, like, lauds, or lauds, tears, one of the morning ones, anyway. Yeah. Pray morning prayer, or, or evening prayer, or whatever. I wonder for some people would it actually be most appealing to pray matins. Just, like, get up in the middle of the night and pray the three o'clock one. Yeah. Um, just because it's, because it is so different, and it's so, like, it's, it's like a big investment, but it's kind of cool. It's, like, yeah. kind of Jedi, like... <laughs> Yeah, um, or even I would say that there's a tendency, particularly in our sort of very electronic age, to stay up later and to be mm. kind of consumed. So it's almost like you could use matins as a trigger to get out of that. Yes, like, yeah. Don't yeah. stay up this late. Yes, yes, yeah, a good point. Yeah, I think that's really, really cool. I think we're going to bring up just a couple more examples of weirdness in Catholic culture and mm. art. Speaking of doing the morning prayer and evening prayer, mm. I was reading about this in last month's edition of the Magnificat, oh, uh, which reminded me, I had known it, it just hadn't been called to mind for a while which was that Salvador Dali had this incredible conversion at not the end of his life there was he he still produced art for a great many years afterwards but you know in the latter half of his life that he reverted back to Catholicism Mm. and he actually renounced surrealism Okay. Um, and so he he wrote this manifesto, which is it's really funny because it's very Salvador Dali. <laughs> it's very self assured and almost I'd think I'd say definitely self aggrandizing. <laughs> but it's actually really surprising. And the weird thing was is that he was converted through science and math, and that he oh, said wow. he was a Catholic without any belief because he felt like he didn't believe, mm. but that all of science was telling him that. God existed and oh, that he existed wow. in the Catholic Church. So mm. I just thought that was really interesting for someone who's so artistic yeah. to have been converted by science. Yes, yeah. Um, and I think really we can tend to put people in boxes that like, mm. oh, if you're interested in art, you'll be converted by art. <laughs> yes, yeah. But I just thought it's it's really interesting. So this was in his manifesto renouncing surrealism. A brilliant inspiration shows me that I have an unusual weapon at my disposal to help me penetrate to the core of reality, mysticism. That is to say, the profound intuitive knowledge of what is direct communication with the all-absolute vision by the grace of truth, by the grace of God. In this state of intense prophecy, it became clear to me that means of pictorial expression achieved their greatest perfection and effectiveness in the Renaissance, and that the decadence of modern painting was a consequence of scepticism and lack of faith the result of mechanistic materialism. By reviving Spanish mysticism, I, Dali, (laughs) shall use my work to demonstrate the unity of the universe by showing the spirituality of all substance. Mm. And the really interesting thing about that, as I said, he is renouncing surrealism. Yes. But he didn't completely change his artistic style. Mm. Um, His artistic style remains very identifiably Dali. Now, he does a lot of human forms at this time Mm. which I I could be wrong but the art history that I did focused on a lot of his surreal paintings which they have that like half of a person's face in the sand they're not necessarily the human form um and everyone knows that's from the the one with the melting clocks and that that's the epitome of surrealism Mm. but it's not that he disregards all of that and disregards his own talents and his own kind of areas of expertise but he integrates it so like I said he does there's one of the last supper there's an incredible one of our lady holding the baby Jesus which is broken up into blocks that are sort of floating above the desert Mm. but the two that are the most famous and the most iconic to me and actually my brother has one of them hanging in his room which is there's one of the crucifix Mm. and I think it's specifically the crucifix he's doing it through the lens of Saint John okay and then he does one of the ascensions so Mm. the crucifix has this wild angle where you're looking straight down on Jesus on the cross 
and that you can kind of see the curve of the earth below him and it has fishing boats and things like that mm. underneath him mm. and the ascension is almost the exact reverse you actually get the soles of his feet oh wow okay going so you're directly under him and he's going up into heaven and he also has this really interesting one of our lady of guadalupe mm. where he shows her as like quite an old woman yeah. and he uses all of these kind of layered patterns on her her clothes so mm. they do evoke the surrealism of dali's earlier work yeah but they're directed towards this encounter with god and this idea of the sublime and the otherworldly. Yes, so it's yeah. like it's almost like he takes those elements of surrealism, which are talking about how the ineffable nature of understanding the world around you, mm. and then puts them to use in terms of Catholic theology. And yeah. it's really fascinating. That's great. It's almost like he's baptizing surrealism for like yeah. purposes of, of Catholic culture. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I love. That's great. No, I must. I'm, I'm not sure I've seen like any of those, so I really must give them a. Give I know. Them a but the thing. other one, pretty sure Picasso kind of stayed in the mindset that he he kind of established. With cubism but at the one of the really interesting ones about picasso is there's this very early painting of his i think he was still in his teens when he painted it but mm. it's of girls getting their first holy communion and it is the least picasso picture you might ever think of okay because well. he started that's the thing that i think people don't necessarily understand about picasso when they see these kind of angular uh, figures they might think that he painted that way because that's how he could paint. But mm. the reality was Picasso was so good that his father was a painter. And when Picasso was still a child, he painted some pigeons and his father literally never painted again because he could not be as good as his son. Wow. Um, so it, he came from a very classical point of view. So, but that's kind of beside the point. But mm. I, I just love that, the, again, like Picasso has these examples of these very like straightforward religious paintings. Yeah, um, yeah. And that you can draw on those elements no matter what you're doing. Yeah. And I think that's actually, you actually see this in, in so many things. They have at least some measure of Christian imagery. Mm -hmm. um, I remember I found it very funny. There's a quite, I haven't watched it yet. I'm not sure I ever will. But there's a famous um, Japanese anime called Neon Genesis Evangelion. <laughs> um, but the creative, there's a lot of Christian imagery in it of like angels and crosses and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> somebody once asked the creator, like, why did you do it? Like, what, what, was, what was the meaning behind that? And he was like, oh, I just thought it looked cool. <laughs> it's like, no one can escape it, even if they like don't necessarily have an intellectual or a spiritual meaning towards putting into it. Yeah. They just like, they're, they're fascinated by it. It's like, remember you use the quote from Mean Girls, it's like, why are you so obsessed with us? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, that's like, really true. And yeah. like, you see it all the time when I, I see people wearing cross patterns on the, on leggings and things like that. And like, on some level, I'm kind of like, that's a bit, like, uh, yeah. it's, it's a bit corporate and a bit yes, materialistic yes. for me. But at the same time, it's like, what? why do you care? Like, why are you wearing this? Yes, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that's really interesting that it's so imbibed in the culture that almost people can't get away from it. One of the, I think the final example that I have is, and I, I'm not entirely sure, I don't know that much about his biography. So I know he, he was definitely in communion towards the end of his life, but I don't know uh, what his life was like during his kind of heyday. But Alfred Hitchcock mm. was also raised as a Catholic went to Catholic school and made two very explicitly Catholic movies. One was called The Wrong Man and the other one is called I Confess. I will confess that I have not seen either of those. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and they're both about, uh, in one case, the I Confess one is about a priest who gets framed for a murder and he can't mm. almost defend himself because the actual murder has come to him for confession. Wow. Um, and the other one is also about a Catholic man who gets wrongly accused mm, and his mm. the imagery of his rosary beads is very prominent in it. Okay. But all of his work was very Catholic-inspired, I would say. The one that jumps out to me is in Vertigo. Like, mm. first of all, there is that huge symbolism around the colours and that, mm. that you can have a kind of ritualization of dressing up in a particular way or... But also just that play of good and evil that goes yes, on in his... Yeah. And certainly weird. Like, yeah. like he's sort of really famous for these strange and off-kilter stories, but that that doesn't mean that they can't have a Catholic genesis. Yes, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I mean there's like even a lot of the climactic scenes in Vertigo take place on a bell tower in a yeah. church. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that's, it's like, that's you, what yeah. I was saying. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you like, you walk in um, and I noticed because I, I watched that and I also rewatched another classic Jimmy Stewart, um, It's a Wonderful Life, this Ano Christmas. Another Catholic filmmaker, Frank Capra. Is it? Okay, yes. wow, fantastic. Yeah, no. Um, I mean, Vertigo, obviously enjoyed It's a Wonderful Life a lot more. Vertigo is a very tough film, but yeah. obviously incredibly well made. 
But in both of them, there's like a five second shot of like a really beautiful high altar <laughs> in the background almost, or like it's just yeah. it's just like there. It might not even necessary to be Catholic. I don't know whether it is or not because probably Lutheran and um, Episcopalian yeah. churches, uh, churches at the time didn't look a million miles different. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting how that's imagery um, of the very beautiful, you know, high high mm -hmm. facing altar is like. It was something that was part of it. Yeah, and I think I talked about this with Chloe when we were talking about monsters and mm. that Catholicism is sort of uniquely positioned for those kinds of stories because yes. there is an externalization of your internal struggles. Mm. And so it's so fitting that Hitchcock, who is that master of the, the psychological examination of wrestling between good and evil or control and chaos mm. or any of those things that he has that ability to render that visual and make it sort of tangible for people yes which i think is just beautiful and the actually the last thing going back to just artwork that yes. i was going to say is that i i gave a shout out in the last episode for the things that i like mm. um to the newest edition of dappled things and I said at the time, and uh, just to recap, that one of the things that they do for Dapple Things is they pick a particular artist yes, for each edition. Yeah. And so that's the artist has the cover of the journal, and then there's also like pages devoted within the journal to their artwork. And the, the artist for the most recent one is Giovanni Gasparo. Mm who does beautiful human figure paintings in but a lot of them are really strange as well okay. and so a kind of recurring theme is that he has a person doing an action and it's almost like it's almost like a layered flip book where you can see all of the actions at once so each, this, yeah. each person has maybe like four sets of hands mm -hmm. that are so like there's a woman praying the rosary and so she has all of her different positions of her hands praying the rosary oh, wow. or falling down uh, St. Peter falling down after his uh, denial of Christ I believe it is and it shows his like hands as he's falling down oh, wow. and weirdly the thing that it reminded me most of and I think we can take for granted how classical or even medieval I think sometimes people expect medieval things to be a bit strange, but I was specifically thinking of um, Fra Angelico, mm. who is one of the greatest Catholic artists and the greatest artists of all time. Mm. But one of my favourite paintings of his, it has Christ in the middle and it has these disembodied hands. Mm. And so one has like a whip yeah. and the other has like, one is slapping him and it shows like two different angles of the hand slapping him. Okay, right. But yeah. they're literally just hands like floating in the air right, around wow, him, wow. which is, is such an unusual representation of that like it feels very modern actually mm. and it mm. feels very weird and it really re reminded me in those paintings of uh, in the dapple things so i love that something that can feel very modern mm. has actually got these roots in this ancient catholic tradition no i love that yeah because um my sister was actually i haven't seen them yet but my sister was telling me about them and she was saying because she, she studies um animation so she's very sort of big on art mm. <laughs> but she was talking about how it's almost like good modern art, if you want to be yeah. so bold. It's using like experimental means yeah. um, while also, you know, taking in that sort of... Um, it's very it's like the hermeneutic of continuity Pope Benedict yeah. talked about, but in the realm of art, I suppose, in the realm of um, yeah. sort of prayer and liturgy. It's that idea that you are taking something old and you're taking a new take on it, but it's still very clear where you came from, but you're also introducing something very foreign and, and interesting. Yeah, and that ability to confront people and shock people in a way that it isn't just for kicks, it isn't yeah. just for setting yourself apart for the sake of not being like other people, that it can serve a really evangelical purpose mm. and draw people towards Christ, which I think is really interesting. Yes. Um, do you have any other points you want to touch on before we finish? I think I'm fine. I think, Excellent. I think if things, can, things can wait to a further day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I'm sure we'll have you back on soon. So that means that we only have one thing left, which is to talk about uh, something you like at the moment. Something I like at the moment. What do I like at the moment? Well, I'm actually... Can I do... Can I do like two? Yeah, <laughs> Can I go for two? Um, so I'm actually going to sneak in a sneaky recommendation, um, which I was, this is something I read very recently uh, within the last few weeks. And it's like an 11 page essay and I took several quotes from it today. And we did something we didn't really touch on, but it's very much on the subject of today. And it's an essay called Convertere Israel a Dominum Deum Tuum, so Convert O Israel to the Lord Your God, I think, by a Benedictine monk called Brother, I'm not going to pronounce the name correctly, Evagrius, E-V-A-G-R-I-U-S, I don't know. Um, and it's basically, it's whether the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass ought to, be, ought to be celebrated towards the East. So if you ever have, have any interest in that area, or just interest in Catholic culture or liturgy or anything like that, I would, it was a dream read. It's like in the Thomistic style, so it's like, he does a bunch of objections and answers them, but just the quotes from, like, I use several quotes from that he quoted in it, so it's it's really, it's a treat to read, but I, I would recommend that. Uh, and then secondly, quite different, <laughs> one of mine and Rachel's shared interests of the 
uh, Bleachers. They are yes. a fantastic band. I would um, really, I honestly, I'm going to see if I can do like a Catholic slant on Bleachers. That would yeah. be really interesting. But yeah, yeah so specifically, they're, um, they did a concert with, or I guess he, they did a concert with um, MTV Unplugged, the MTV Unplugged session. And I would highly recommend listening to that with the best earphones that you can get, because I've listened to it twice with different earphones, and the one with the better earphones, it was a much more enjoyable experience. So cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, uh, I would highly recommend that as well. Yeah. Oh. I, I don't think I've actually listened to that Bleachers. It's, yeah, it's I've so listened good. to most Bleachers. Yes, no, exactly. Actually, so, it, was par- it was partially... So it was my aforementioned sister and Rachel who actually got me into it, so cred to them. <laughs> uh, and just to give a bit of background, Bleachers is a, a band, but it's primarily fronted by Jack Antonoff. Mm. But it's got a very 80s sound, yes. and I'm a, I'm a big fan. They've got two albums... Gone now and strange desires. Yes, strange you... desires. There you go. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's my in. For there my, we go. Yeah, my, yeah. My Catholic. Um, you've probably heard a song co-written by him, though he has co-written many things. Yes, Green he... Light by the Word. Um, what else? Out of the... with Taylor Swift. Yeah, yeah, Out of the Woods by Taylor Swift. Um, yeah, he does a lot of um producing. Uh, for the thing that I want to talk about, actually, this is kind of very much on topic. Although it's not, I I haven't found anything to suggest that it was written with any kind of Catholic. Uh, slant although I did find some kind of sacramental elements in it it's a movie called You Were Never Really Here and I will give an enormous warning about this film it it is a very violent film (laughs) based on a book of the same name by a man called Jonathan Ames and it's about a man who is his job is to be hired to rescue girls from sexual exploitation and so it opens with one job but essentially follows with just the one job for the entire movie and it's a very it's a beautifully shot the music is incredible it stars Joaquin Phoenix mm. and is directed by Lynn Ramsey she directed we need to talk about Kevin if anyone has watched that but some of it some of it is tonally a little like taxi driver mm. but it's definitely got a really beautiful style to it uh, and the thing that I would say in defense of it being quite a violent film and it is so <laughs> please don't go into it thinking it's not <laughs> but it's not at all what you would expect it to be in, mm-hmm. in some ways I think it's there's so many elements of it that I think steer away from self-indulgence so there's lots of violence in it but you don't actually see a lot of the violence up close, you actually see the aftermath of the violence okay, sure, quite sure. up close, which I think is often the direct opposite in a lot of movies. Like mm. you see, you see the fight going down, but you don't see the person afterwards. Yeah, you know? totally. Uh, and so you see the implications of violence and the result of violence and the aftermath of violence, but it actually tends to give you quite a far distant shot of when the violence is actually happening Mm. and the same I would also say very impressively the same about the exploitation element of it it's not a in that respect I would not call it a scandalous movie I think they do an amazing job of representing and, and displaying the danger and the harm that these girls are in without further exploitating the girls who have to enact it for yeah, the movie. Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, I think that's done really, really tastefully and really well that that it's suggested and you understand what's going on, but without having to be really explicit about it, yes. which I really like. And the other element I think is really in its favour is that it's really short. It's, okay. It's like 89 minutes, right, which right. I think... I'm a, I'm a big fan of short movies, actually. <laughs> I, th- I think there's been sort of like time creep on a lot of movies. Yeah. that Some movies that deserve it, I think Shawshank Redemption is perfect. I would yes. never touch yeah. it. <laughs> yes. uh, but I think there's been sort of creep on a lot of movies that don't deserve to be as long as they are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so particularly for a movie that in some ways is hard to watch and is quite intense, I think it shows a level of self-restraint to make it short mm. and to not just draw out that as for as long as possible yes. for, for kicks or for scandal or for um, any of those things so I yes it got a lot of nominations and a lot of awards earlier in the year but mm. it's been completely overlooked for the Oscars sure, so sure. I would like to give it a little shout you were never really here so and I think that's it yeah that's it that's it for us <laughs> incredible so thank you very very much for listening the usual please share comment rate all of those good things and uh, until the next time goodbye bye This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.